0: Good morning, everyone. This is the DOLW3 podcast, and uh, this is our episode number 29. Is our Diocese of Lansing filtering Pope Francis? What triggered this for, for us is that um, we recently attended uh, a conference in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, on the the uh, unity and diversity, I mean, I'm sorry, no, the unity and division going on in the church. And from that, after listening to all the speakers, um, you know, one of the big, the big things I took from that is um, they told us to stop talking. And I did not hear one thing uh, in a discussion there about Pope Francis. Pope Francis, on the other hand, tells us to bother your pastors. Bother your pastors, disturb your pastors, all of us pastors, so that we will give you the milk of grace, of doctrine, and of guidance. And, um, you know, it started me thinking, you know, coming from love, coming from love, God is love. And bringing this kind of subject up is difficult it causes, uh, causes suffering, and um, Jesus suffered. And from his suffering, good came. And, you know, we cannot run from that suffering. And I think one of, the, one of the big things this recent conference, and this is what we hear all around the diocese, we hear nothing. We hear what Francis actually has told us to, um, to get away from it. You know, um, having just preaching about being peaceful and calm. Um, that is what we hear and we continue to hear at the Ambo. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm afraid that our priests are missing the boat. There is a lot of hurt from the scandal. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of souls that don't feel remembered, that um, may never be able to come back to the faith because of what happened to them. There is clericalism about, um, which Pope Francis, you know, he... Pretty much lets us know that clericalism is probably the number one problem. There's a lot of discussion about that and arguments going on over that. But the bottom line is that need for power, that need to, you know, uh, abuse the power. So, with that, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, uh, is our diocese filtering Pope Francis? In this conference, we didn't hear one thing about Pope Francis and what he teaches us and what he's telling us to do. So I'm going to give you some examples here. One of, the, one of the examples is, didn't hear anything about what does Pope Francis say about little monsters? And I'm just going to read you a little short clip of uh, an article that um, uh, when Pope Francis was speaking. This is hypocrisy that is a result of clericalism, which is one of the worst evils Francis was quoted as saying, returning to the issues of clericalism or a certain cronyism and careerism among the men of cloth that he has frequently criticized. The training of priests, he said, must be a work of art, not a police action. We must form their hearts, otherwise we are creating little monsters. And then these little monsters mold the people of God. This really gives me goosebumps, he was quoted saying. And I think that's powerful, because I, I believe that is what we are seeing. Uh, you know, are there good priests? Of course there are good priests. Um, there are bad priests, too. And I think Pope Francis sees, you know, what is going on and what has been going on and has been going on for years. And um, to address it in such a big in institution, it uh, takes time and it's slow. Okay, and then so the next thing I wanted to talk about is the um, Pope Francis talks about the nesting mentality. And you may have heard me speak about this before, but we don't hear this. We didn't hear one thing about this and how to address this with our our priest and our staff. Um, as you guys know, uh, I've told my story a little bit. I have never gone into full detail, but um, I definitely could see this nest mentality there at hrburton.org. Um, Anyways, here's what Pope Francis says about the nesting mentality. And may God preserve us from the nest mentality, that of jealousy, guarding ourselves in the small group of those who consider themselves good, the priest with his loyal followers, the pastoral workers closed in among themselves so that no one can infiltrate, the movements and associations in their own particular charism, and so on, he said. It's a really good article, and you just have to Google uh, Pope Francis and Nest Mentality, and you can pull up that article. Um, you know, the Pope also has um, made, made changes to the canon law in, in seen that it was necessary. Um, and, and one of the topics here, I'm, one, I'm not going to read the article, but the Pope changes canon law to explicitly criminalize grooming and pre-sexual abuse of adults. So I'm gonna give you the key points here. For the first time, canon law officially recognizes grooming as a criminal act. The new code adds excommunication and possible defrocking as penalties for clerics who try to ordain women. Bishops who now now can be removed for failing to report suspected crimes to church authorities, but no similar penalty for failing to report them to the police. So uh, those are some key points from there. I also would like to read this. Pope, Pope Widen's Church Law to Target Sexual Abuse of Adults by Priests and Laity. This is was in the New York Times uh, in Rome. Pope Francis has broadened the Roman Catholic Church's definition of sexual abuse by revising its penal code to explicitly acknowledge that adults and not only children can be victimized by priests and powerful lay people who abuse their offices. And, you know, so that that leads me into um, why is it necessary uh, that we memorialize these things and that we talk about them often, number one, um, those abuses, you know. So many in the scandal, you know, that if we want to talk about the scandal, we're told, you know, um, why do you want to keep bringing that up? You know, that's just old stuff. That's just old news. No, it's not. Why, then, I ask you, uh, priests... Um uh, people in the conferences who lead conferences and talk about the use of language, you know, um, they use the uh, you know, we know what we're talking about because we have um, we have the knowledge. You do not, so stop talking. You know, there's that we they distinction there. And we are all Catholics. We are all um, united. We have human dignity. And at the end of that, you know, just to tell you, you know, this whole stop talking thing. At the very end, they said there will be no question and answer period. And I went up and asked afterwards. I said uh, um, to to one of the people there uh, that was running it, or that one of the speakers said to me. Uh, I said, you know, you know, it would have been nice to be able to have question and answers. And the answer was well we can't control those answers you know that tells you what kind of um, discussion you're having it's not a discussion you're being fed something and again it's you know it's about making peace and um but it's not real it's not getting at the crux of all these things these painful things that people go through and then are just out there left alone pretty much to uh you know, I was exiled from, from my church. My, uh, my friend and colleague, he was um, exiled from the church. Uh, community was um, destroyed in that church. Uh, ministries for the poor, ministries for delivering food, all those things were destroyed. And, you know, it is said in, in their circles that, you know, I wouldn't come and talk. That, that became a great big thing, you know, Therese, go talk, go talk. And I did. I want you all to know I did talk three times and um, those in power did not want to include the vulnerable did not want any part of it number one it would cost too much money and it would take too much time and you know they're just really not a big interest in it how do we know how do we know how many family members are sitting in those pews with a mentally ill person that they have a hard time dealing with. We don't know unless we talk about it and ask questions about it. And, you know, put that cross that our pastor was going through at that time because of this uh, mentally ill person. Um, put that cross in front of the people. You think we're so stupid that we can't come up with things? You know, and this is the message I re- we received at that conference. It's, it's like, you're too stupid to get it. You don't have the knowledge, you know, and your language. You know, you don't use the proper language. You don't use the proper words, but we do. How, how sad that is. Okay, so with that, um, I want to read, well, I want to talk a little bit about memorializing. I, you know, it's important to memorialize. All we have to do is look at what happened in Auschwitz to the Jews. Why is it important to have a Yad Vashon? That's a memorial, perpetual memorial for all those lives lost. We should not ever um, forget. You know, Rudyard Kipling, Kipling wrote that poem about "lest we forget." That's a famous saying. We should never forget those loss of lives, those you know things that happen in war. And believe me, survivors of sexual abuse, survival of. Those abused by their pastors who use clericalism on them, that um, that is a mark. It's like a sword in your heart, and you, it, it's a wound. You just don't get over it. It's important to memorialize these things. And uh, Randy Engel, and she, you know she's here with us today in her writings, and I I want to read this to remind you um, how important it is. And I also want to remind you that. Her books, The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality, and the Roman Catholic Church, goes all the way back into the history. This is a five-volume investigative report, and it's been shelved. You do not hear at the pulpit that we should be reading this. The men in the seminaries should have this in their seminary. You do not hear these guys talking about that. It's supposed to be hush-hush. We don't want this to ever happen again. How do we memorialize it if we don't talk about it? We think of those souls, those souls that have been so damaged, and we pray to God for them, you know, that uh, Mother Mary, please, please lead them to your son, because, uh, but, you know, if they can talk about it, and don't give that message, darn it all, don't give that message, stop talking about it. No, talk about it. Let's heal it. Let's help these people heal. Let's bring Catholics back to the church. Okay, so I'm going to start in her book, The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality, and the Roman Catholic Church, volume four. I have been reading about it, but I put it on the shelf for a while because there were other things that came up. You know, one the, the last few podcasts I talked a lot about writing to your bishops, you know, using your voice. And we'll probably go back to that, too, because that's what we do here. Um, that's our whole purpose is to get you to use your voice, to to realize, you know, the Catholic Church seems like it's this huge, you know, huge lion or huge elephant, you know. But we can take it in bits and pieces with our voices, and we can let our bishops know. and uh, And we can ask them for the sweet milk of the grace of doctrine and guidance that Pope Francis tells us to do. All right. We are to disturb. Don't ever forget that. Disturb. No matter what they treat you like, um, we are to do that. And, and, and to bring up one more point, you know, think of this. If, if you, as, an, as, as a bystander, you see things going on, and you know it's a sin, and you know it's against um, the doctrine of the church, and if you don't know, maybe you should look it up. You know, if, is what's going on, is that a sin in the church? Does it become your sin then if you don't correct? There is a ministry. We are to correct the ills of the church. We are not just to ignore it, bury our heads, and act like it's not happening. Okay, so I'm on page 889, beginning chapter 15. This is again Randy Ingle, the rite of sodomy, homosexuality, and the Roman Catholic Church. Now, she was, you know, so um, led by the Spirit to stay with this for 17 years, to write this these books, you know, of what she's seen and put it out there. It's there for us. And, you know, this is our history. This is something we should memorialize for the sake that it should never happen again. The special case of Joseph Cardinal Burnett, Burdine, uh, chapter 15, begins on page 889. Again, this is in volume four. Introduction. This segment of Joseph Cardinal Bernadine was originally incorporated into the previous chapter on homosexual members of the American hierarchy. However, because of his extraordinary influence on AM Church, I decided Cardinal Bernadine deserved a chapter all of his own. To do do real justice to Cardinal Bernadine and, and his entourage of clerical homosexuals and pederasts, and ancillary hangers-on who made up the Chicago, Washington, D.C., homosexual slash pederast access would require more than one full-sized book. The highly condensed summary of information on the role played by Bernadine in the building of the homosexual collective within A.M. Church is intended to dispel the fiction that the late Cardinal Bernadine managed to fool all the people all the time. That Bernadine's alleged sexual penchant for young men still remains an open issue even today. Many years after the Cardinal's death is reflected in the remarks made by writer-therapist A.W. Richard Seip in his keynote address. View from the Eye of the Storm given on February 23, 2003, to the Link-Up National Conference in Louisville, Kentucky. According to Seip, years before, Bernardine was charged with sexual abuse by Stephen Cook in 1993. Several priests who were associates of Bernardine prior to his move to Chicago revealed that they had partied together. They talked about their visits to the Josephineum to socialize with seminarians. It is a fact that Bernadine's accuser, Cook, did not ever retract his allegations of abuse by anyone's account other than Bernadine's, said Sype. He also acknowledged a report that before his death, Cook had reached a settlement in the $3 million range with the Archdiocese of Chicago, Cincinnati. I'm going to pause here. I'm going to talk about that $3 million for a minute. You know... I don't think Catholics like to know this but we have paid for that um, and how do you feel about that how do you guys feel about funding this kind of scandal do you what do you think about that three million dollars your donations things that we're, we're putting into the church that we think is being properly channeled well I got news for you uh, you know there's another big uh, thing in the church that's that's really um, Pope Francis has really taken taken a knife to is uh, is the financial scandal. It is a fact that Bernardine's accuser, whoops, I'm sorry, I already read that part. Father Charles Fior, the well-known Dominican, related much of the information recalled by sight to this writer in a series of phone interviews that spanned more than five years in the early 1990s, but in much greater detail. This information included the testimony of a seminarian who claimed he was forced into a sexual relationship with Bernadine and other American prelates and who said he attended sexual functions at which the Archbishop paraded Stephen Cook around. The Cook case, as we shall see, was not the first time that Bernadine's name had come up in connection with homosexual activities and sex abuse scandals, some of which involved occult practices. Shortly before Cook filed suit against Father Ellis, Harsham, and Cardinal Bernadine in November 1993, Monsignor Frederick Hopewood, Bernadine's former roommate from Charleston, South Carolina was accused of sexually abusing over 100 boys. Much of the alleged abuse took place when Bernadine was serving as assistant chancellor for the Diocese of Charleston under Bishop John J. Russell. Cardinal Bernadine sent a team of archdiocese lawyers to Charleston to arrange an out-of-court settlement for Hopewood's victims. The records were sealed. So I want to stop here. This is why we memorialize. What about those victims? I have to ask you, look at that. And why do we want to memorialize this? Think of those victims. Think of their families. Think of the people around them in the church who all, what happened? You know, what happened to their faith? And I hope they became a voice. I hope that they're they're using their voice and memorializing this. And more and more Catholics begin to stand up and memorialize this so that Um, It never happens again. The Diocese of Charleston has long been recognized as seat of doctrinal progressivism since the days of Bishop John England and the city of Charleston is the historic hub of the new and reformed Paladine Rite, created by Freemason Albert Pike in the 1870s, a rite which hails Lucifer as the light-bearer. It was here in Charleston that the young Joe Bernadine lived out his early years. Okay, Bernadine as the Dutiful Son. Joseph Louis Bernadine was born on April 2, 1928, one year after his parents immigrated to to Charleston from Italy. The most traumatic event in his childhood was the death of his father, Joseph, from cancer when little Joe was a six-year-old. Thereafter, his world revolved around his mother, Maria, who, finding it impossible to return to Italy, managed to raise Joe and his younger sister, Elaine, on her meager earnings as a seamstress during the years of the Great Depression. The Bernadines lived with relatives until they could afford an apartment of their own. And during these formative years, Joe assumed many of the domestic chores of the household, including the cooking of dinners and the care of Elaine. Joe Bernadine, who was only five when he started public grammar school during his father's long hospitalization, graduated from high school at age 16. He went to the University of South Carolina on a scholarship. One year later, he left the university's pre-med program to study for the priesthood. His mother, and friends were taken by surprise as Bernadine was not a particularly religious young man. Joe Bernadine received his A.B. Summa Cum Laude from St. Mary's Seminary in Baltimore in 1948. He went on to study at the Theological College, the National Seminary of Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., operated by the Society of St. Sulpice. In 1949, due to his mother's ill health, Bernardine turned down a golden opportunity offered to him by Bishop Emmett Walsh of Charleston to study at the North American College in Rome. Three years later, on April 26, 1952, at the age of 24, Bernardine was ordained a priest of the Diocese of Charleston at St. Joseph's Church in Columbia, South Carolina. Page 891. A meteoric rise-up. The Ecclesiastical Ladder. Father Joe Bernardine's first assignment was an associate pastor at St. Joseph Church. In 1954, only two years after his organization, Bishop John Joyce Russell, Bishop Walsh's successor, brought Bernadine to work in the chancery where he took on a wide assortment of administrative tasks. He rapidly rose from chaplain to director of vocations to vicar general and Chancellor and Secretary to Bishop Russell. In 1959, at the age of 31, Pope John the 23rd made Bernadine a Monsignor. Among Bernadine's close friends was Monsignor Frederick Hopewood, who also worked at the Chancery and lived at the rectory of the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist. Originally ordained as a priest of the Archdiocese of New York in 1951, Hopwood was sent to Charleston by Cardinal Spellman in January 1952. The reason for this transfer is unclear. In 19 in November 1954, the same year that Bernadine began to work at the Chancery, Spellman gave permission for Hopwood to be incarnated into the Diocese of Charleston. Bishop Russell, made Hopwood his assistant chancellor. By the late 1950s, Monsignor Hopwood had gained a reputation as the chancery's president pederast, resident pederast. Hopwood routinely sexually abused young boys in his room at the Cathedral of St. John, as well as Camp St. Mary in in Beaufort. Such criminal activities could hardly have escaped the attention of Hopwood's superior, Bishop Russell, or his friend, Monsignor Bernadine. Hopwood's long record of sexual abuse, which involved more than 100 victims, did not come to light until December 1993, when the first lawsuit was filed against the priest. All of Hopwood's victims who pressed charges were eventually paid off by the Diocese of Charleston, with the financial and legal assistance from Cardinal Bernadine and lawyers hired by the Archdiocese of Chicago from the premier law firm of Mayer, Platt & Brown. The court records of the Hopwood case were sealed as part of the financial settlement with the priest victims and their families. As of June 2004, Reverend Monsignor Hopwood was still listed as a priest retired of the diocese of Charleston. Whether or not Bernadine was an active pederast alongside Hopwood or simply a silent partner while the Hopwood follies were in full swing in the diocese of Charleston is not known and it is unlikely that Hopwood, who owes his freedom to the late cardinal, will enlighten us on the subject anytime soon. So I just wanted to stop here for a second and can you see Pope Francis, you know. Seeing these things or hearing these things, maybe maybe he's read the book. I don't know, but can you imagine, you know, what he thinks? Number one, and seeing, you know, uh, and I'm just speculating here, and seeing uh, these things going on, why he names it clericalism? I mean, it is it is definitely sexual abuse, of course it is, but it even goes further because there's so much complicit behavior among the brothers in in the church. As Paul Liquidus points out in AM Church Comes Out, Monsignor Hopwood was not the only active clerical pederast in the Charleston Diocese during the Russell Bernadine years. There was Father Justin Goodwin, who was ordained in 1953. He reportedly spent a great deal of his spare time at the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist. In June 1995, Goodwin, was charged with the sexual abuse of male minors. Diocesan officials had moved Goodwin from parish to parish, not only in the Diocese of Charleston, but also to out-of-state parishes in Washington, D.C., New York, and North Carolina before he left the priesthood. I'm going to stop here to, um, you know, what pops into my head is we see the same stuff going on Still in our Lansing diocese, and I'm sure it goes on. You know, I know we have the Gaylord diocese watch too, and here in Michigan, and we have the Mary McKillop coalition. We have all these things going on for a reason, because these things do. They, you know, they keep happening. Priests keep getting moved around. We've just there's just been another report by a priest um, that's being investigated, and uh, uh, with uh, things that were. Oh, it's possible that he. Um, well, I should say it is reported by other students in the high school that he, this priest, um, spoke of a confession by one of his by one of the students in front of a group of other students, and uh, which is breaking the seal of confession. That's a major no no. That is being investigated uh, uh, and being watched. The Gaylord Diocese is watching it. Uh, the Mary McKillop Coalition's watching it, and we're watching it too, and you should be too. We should be, because priests are being moved around. This priest was moved around, and he's moved again. New mentors in Halinan and Dearden. In September, we are on page 892, and this will be the last section I read. In September 1958, Bishop Paul J. Halinan, one of AM Church's rising stars, replaced Russell at as the new bishop of Charleston. Hallinan took Bernadine on as his protege, and Bernadine adopted Halinan, the first archbishop of Atlanta. Four years later, after contracting what proved to be a fatal case of hepatitis in Rome, Halinan brought Bernadine to Atlanta on April 26, 1966. He, had, he ordained him an, an auxiliary bishop at the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist. Bernadine was the youngest bishop in the United States. For a brief period, Bernadine served as a rector of the Cathedral of Christ, the King in Atlanta until he was tapped by Archbishop John F. Dearden, the first president of the newly created NCCB USCC to serve as the bureau's first general secretary. Bernadine resigned as auxiliary of Atlanta on April 5, 1968 to become the first of a long, virtually unbroken line of homosexual and pro-homosexual clerics to hold the position of General Secretary and or Presidency of the NCCB-USCC. With the death of Cardinal Spellman of New York on December 2, 1967, there was a gradual shift in power away from individual kingmakers like Spellman and Mundelein. The new breed of prelates derived their power from their positions within the centralized AM church structure of the NCCB-USCC. The massive reorganization of the old National Catholic Welfare Conference into the super bureaucracy of the NCCB slash USCC proved to be an unbelievable boon to the homosexual collective within and without the Church. It accelerated accelerated the rate of wholesale infiltration and colonization of dioceses throughout the United States and reached its zenith under the sign of Pope Paul VI. One of the Bishop Bernardine's closest friends at the NCCB slash USCC was fellow homosexual father James S. Roush, <clears throat> whose background has been thoroughly covered in Chapter 11 in 1970. Bishop Bernadine appointed Father Roush, Assistant General Secretary of the NCCB USCC, after Bernardine was made Archbishop of Cincinnati in November 1972, Roche succeeded him as General Secretary. Roche was ordained an Auxiliary Bishop at St. Cloud, Minnesota by Cardinal John Kroll of Philadelphia on April 26, 1973. <clears throat> in January 1977, Having served out his term of office at the NCCB-USCC, Roche was made bishop of the Diocese of Phoenix. Another close friend of Bernadine was Michael J. Sheehan, one of Bernadine's four assistant secretaries at the NCCB-USCC. He had the reputation of being Bernadine's hatchet man. His main task was to fire the employees inherited from the old National Catholic Welfare Conference and replaced them with more politically and morally progressive clerics and laymen. Sheehan later became the Archbishop of Santa Fe, a proverbial dumping ground for clerical preterists on the run. The reader may recall that Sheehan was the rector of Holy Trinity Seminary in Dallas, which accepted the notorious Rudolf Rudy Koss as a candidate for the priesthood despite the fact that Koss was a divorced man and known pederast who had sexually abused his own brothers. The former rector of the seminary had warned Sheehan against Koss, but he was ignored. Sheehan's folly brought a judgment of millions of dollars in out-of-court settlements and litigation fees upon the Dallas diocese and helped Koss earn a life sentence. One of Koss's victims, Jay Lernberger, a former altar boy, took his own life at the age of 20, a tragedy that cannot be papered over with money. Now, here's, here's my thing here, guys. You know I'm talking about memorializing. Can't get that back. It's a death. What happened in my parish at HolyRedeemerBurton.org? Can't get that back. We have lost community. And as re- a, a result of a community luncheon program shutting down, we lost lives. We were building community there. Um, I can still think that, you know, where we would service the homeless people, bring them water in the heat, that we probably wouldn't have lost two of the victims without, you know, because we were bringing them water. When that uh, community luncheon dispersed, much dispersed. And we have death because of it. An upcoming prelate to whom Bernadine was especially attached was auxiliary bishop John Roach, who later became the bishop or the archbishop of Saint Paul in Minneapolis. Roach served as a president of the NCCB slash USCC from 1980 to 1983. Bernadine and Roach, who some AM Church observers characterized as conjoined twins, dominated political life at the NCCB. USCC for decades, first directly and later through the clerics. They advanced to bi- bishor- bishop- jif- bishoprics, 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 that's a hard word for me, and key positions within the American bishops' bureaucracy. The two men were frequent traveling companions and cooperated on a number of important NCC. B. Documents, including the 1983 pastoral letter, The Challenge of Peace, God's Promise on Our Response, the challenged that challenged the morality of nuclear deterrence. Okay, I'm going to end here, and we'll begin at the bottom of page 893 next time. I want to thank you all for listening. Um, if you have any comments, you can always reach me uh at the Diocese of Lansing, watch3 at gmail.com. Anyways, uh, I'd like to say a prayer with you and uh, always, always uh, know that there's hope, that we look up, that our church is beautiful, it is steeped in history, um, it has gone through challenging times from the, you know, from the very first adam and eve you know the people of god have uh, been wayward and done things but we never leave god we always stay at god's side we do out of love what god calls us to do Um, so with that let's say hail mary full of grace the lord is with thee blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb jesus holy mary mother of god pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and shall be forever. Amen. Our Lady of Mount Carmel, pray for us. Saint Joseph, protect us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.